Well, hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM366 Basic Christian Doctrine Podcast. This will be our last episode with any new content before the final exam, so if you're listening, I want to encourage you one more time to make sure you take a chance to look at the review guide, and be sure to listen to the last podcast episode later this week, which will include a brief review of all of the content that will be on the exam. Today, though, we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of the doctrine of the church by ending on a topic that is perhaps most divisive, surprisingly, in the history of Christianity, and that is the subject of the sacraments. But even that term, as we'll see, is debated. What do I mean when I refer to the sacraments? Well, I'm referring to such practices as baptism, where either an infant or an adult or someone right before death at times is either sprinkled with water, doused with water, or dunked in water in order to symbolize something religiously significant, though this is heavily debated in terms of what the significance is. So baptism is a sacrament. Uh, the Lord's Supper or communion uh, or the Eucharist, we don't even have an agreed upon term there, is a ritual where Christians come together to take bread and wine, or maybe bread and grape juice, or maybe a wafer and a grape juice, in remembrance of Jesus Christ and the Last Supper that he had with his disciples. But as we'll see, the theological significance of this activity is also quite heavily debated. This is such a heavily debated subject that we have some rather strange stories coming out of Christian history. For example, there was one group during the Reformation, so when a group of Christians split off of the, off of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, this splitting group, the Protestants, could not come to an agreement on what the Lord's Supper meant. So one group of Christians said, well, we're just going to wait. We believe it's a symbol of unity, and so we're going to wait until we can all agree, and then we will take it again in our churches. This group waited for over two centuries and finally gave up and decided to start taking the Lord's Supper again. So we're in an area that is, on the one hand, very controversial, but on the other hand, is very practical. Lots of people will come to church and may not have a clear sense of what that church believes, or even what they believe, in terms of a doctrine like the Trinity. However, virtually anyone who comes to church, regularly at least, will experience rituals like the Lord's Supper or like baptism and will recognize quite quickly that these rituals are practiced in very distinctive manners among different Christians. So today, I'm not going to be able to cover anywhere near the fullness of these disputes, but I do hope that I'll be able to introduce you to the basic issues at stake and to help you begin to question what you yourself believe next time you go and are involved in a service at a church. I want to start by returning to this term, sacrament, which I've already shared, not everyone agrees is an appropriate term to use here. Let me define the term, and if you're following along on PowerPoint 4.3, I'm on slide 3. This slide will be perhaps the most important on the exam. So a sacrament is said to have four dimensions. First, it's a sign. It is one physical thing that represents something else. So usually in class, to illustrate this, I will put a red octagon on the board and I'll ask, what is this? And everybody says the stop sign. Yes and no, technically it's a red octagon, but you immediately know that it symbolizes 
the stop sign. Just as you know that the stop sign, a physical piece of metal uh, in an octagonal shape, symbolizes that you should stop. So in the Lord's Supper, for example, you have bread and wine, though again, some prefer wafers and grape juice or any combination therein. You have these things as a symbol of Christ's body and blood. Not any sign, though, counts as a sacrament. You need something more. In this case, the second thing you need is a likeness between the sign and the thing signified. So there's really no likeness between a red octagon and the act of stopping your vehicle from moving. I could have just as easily picked a green triangle and given it the same meaning uh, if I was the one who first came up with road signs, which I'm not. This is not the case for many sacraments, for all sacraments. So baptism, for example, you are uh, submerging uh, a child or an adult in water in order to symbolize spiritual cleansing. Water cleans. It's not an arbitrary symbol. Uh, it's a symbol where the sign is actually like, in some sense, that which it is signifying. The third thing that you need for a sacrament is authorization. Someone has to have endorsed this with sufficient authority to actually make it a sacrament. I can't suddenly stand up and say, okay, listening to my podcasts is a sacrament because I don't have any authority in the church. For Catholics, authorization of something as a sacrament is thought to be held within the tradition and confirmed by the institutional church. So a church council could theoretically gather and declare a new sacrament, provided that it was a legitimate sign that had a likeness to what it was signifying and that it met our fourth criteria I'll come to in a moment. Protestants would say authorization only comes from Christ himself or from the Bible. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and passed it around and explained that it was his body broken for the disciples, and that they should do this in remembrance of him. Those words, do this, is thought to be an authorization by Christ that we should take bread and wine in remembrance of him in our religious services. Now, if you stop there, if you stop at these first three aspects, you have what's known as an ordinance something that God has ordained, which is a sign, but not an arbitrary one. Many Christians leave it there. They would say that the Lord's Supper and baptism are ordinances, things we are commanded to do to remember. Typically, Mennonites and Baptists, for example, stop with the idea of an ordinance. If you add a fourth dimension, though, you reach what's known as a sacrament. This fourth dimension is a connection with grace. Now, the nature of this connection can be heavily disputed, and we'll talk about this some in a moment. But if, by participating in this sign, somehow God's grace affects you in a unique way that it would not without this sign, then you have a sacrament. So those that insist that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance would deny that God's grace works through the bread and the wine in any unique way that is any different from, say, sitting down and having pizza together or dos amigos. So that's the sacrament. And again, 
There's a helpful acronym that I've found has helped students remember these four points, and that is SLAG. You need a sign, likeness, authorization, and grace. SLAG. So what are the sacraments? Here again, we have a debate. Protestants who accept sacraments, and not all do, would accept the idea of Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion, we don't agree on terms, and baptism as the only two true sacraments. So this is what you find in the Anglican Church or the Lutheran Church or among pre some Presbyterians, for example. The Roman Catholic Church would add five more sacraments to this list. Penance, being the practice whereby after confessing to a priest, you are giving an act that symbolizes your inward repentance as a means of being restored to fellowship with the church and with Christ. Marriage, last rites, uh, so sometimes called extreme unction, uh, something done right before death to prepare you for entering the next world. Ordination, a process whereby you become a priest. And then confirmation, uh, the official entrance of an individual into the church having accepted its catechism or teaching, which must be completed prior to your first acceptance of the Eucharist. It's interesting to note that these five additional Catholic sacraments, which Protestants deny, but these five additional ones cannot be taken all by the same person, except in very rare circumstances. The reason why is if you are married, you are not allowed to be ordained and vice versa, according to Catholic teaching, unless perhaps you are married and your spouse dies and then you are ordained, which can happen, but it's pretty rare. So hardly anyone has all seven of these sacraments, and yet from the Catholic perspective, they are all important means by which God's grace is conveyed. I'm going to focus on the first two, Eucharist and Baptism since they are perhaps the most heavily contested here among Protestants and between Protestants, Catholics, and the Orthodox Church. Where does the debate come from? Well, a lot of it is based on differing ways of interpreting Scripture. So I have on the next slides 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 30, where Paul writes, I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. So one question is, what does he mean there? Does the bread literally become his body? Does it figuratively become his body? Is it just a symbol? This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. That emphasis on remembrance has led many to say that this is merely an act of remembering and nothing extra. Paul goes on, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Many other Christians interpret this warning against sinning against God by taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly, or becoming sick through not taking it correctly, and the insistence on the need to recognize the body of the Lord, 
Many interpret this part of the passage to suggest that something more is going on in the Lord's Supper, something more substantive. There's also the question of who can take the Lord's Supper. Some churches allow anyone who attends to come forward or to remain in the seat as the bread is passed by, or whatever their practice is, but some churches allow anyone to participate in the ritual. Other churches say, if you do not recognize the body of the Lord, in other words, if you do not believe, you should not be a part of this service. But otherwise, any Christians are welcome to participate. Other churches will even say, unless you are a member of our particular type of church, you should not take of this ritual within our congregation. So there's a lot of debate here. That's just from one passage, and there are many that are involved. I'm going to try and break things down again, and once again I'm going to be um, simplifying things pretty significantly. I'm going to give you three perspectives, the Roman Catholic, the Lutheran and Reformed, and the Anabaptist perspective, mapping on to the same perspectives that I gave you on the four attributes of the church. But here again, if we looked much more closely, we would see that there are differences between the Reformed and Lutherans. Likewise, even among Lutherans or among Roman Catholics, there are different views. If you want to know this in great detail, come talk to me, send me an email, um, or become a theology ministry major. Otherwise, this should be enough for you to get the big picture. So we can ask a few questions. First question is, what happens at the Eucharist? The Roman Catholic Church would say that God causes grace, sort of like a medicine, we might say metaphorically, to be present at and through the sacraments. So if you take the Lord's Supper, God's grace moves through it into you in a way that spiritually heals you. It's very simplified. I can go in much greater depth using more technical terms from Roman Catholicism, but let's go simple for now. What do Lutheran and Reformed theologians think? So Protestants. Well, they don't think of the Lord's Supper as necessarily conveying grace to us by the work of God. Rather, they would tend to emphasize a theory something like this. Through these unique symbols, these unique sacraments, we have a one-of-a-kind opportunity to strengthen our faith and therefore to strengthen our union with Christ. So it's not the bread per se that communicates this goodness to us. It is the spirit that causes us to respond to the uniqueness of this bread that causes transformation in us. Both, though, would hold to some sense of God's grace being active here, and so both would affirm the idea of a sacrament. Anabaptists, on the other hand, would say that these are only ordinances. We are proclaiming the faith through the Eucharist. We are proclaiming our membership in the church, but there is no special connection here to God's grace. The next question we could ask is the question of in what sense the bread and the wine are the body and blood of Christ. From a Roman Catholic standpoint, you would need to affirm the doctrine of transubstantiation. Trans means across. Substance refers to what something fundamentally is. So on this account, though the appearance of the bread and wine don't change, the substance does, so that the bread and wine are literally the body and blood of Christ. 
There are different theories for how this works, but one medieval theory relies on a distinction that comes from the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle distinguishes between accidents and substantial properties. Uh, substantial properties or substance refers to what a thing fundamentally is. Accidents refer to characteristics that something happens to have. So you can look at bread and it can be sweet or it can be salty and savory. It can be burnt or it can be undercooked. It can be soft or it can be relatively crispy. In all of these ways, despite these differences in attribute, we still say that we are dealing with bread. So those attributes must not be necessary for something to count as bread. If it stops being savory and begins to be sweet, it doesn't cease being bread. It just becomes a sweet bread. Similarly, the body and blood of Christ may be given the accidental properties of tasting like bread and like wine and looking like bread and like wine, even though deep down it is truly the body and blood of the Lord. So through the ritual of the Lord's Supper, the Catholic Church would affirm transubstantiation such that you were eating something that tastes like bread, but truly receiving the nature of Christ, and through that reception, God's grace is working to transform you. In the finer details, Lutherans and Reformed theologians agree, or excuse me, disagree in major ways with one another. But to greatly simplify, we can say that they share a view known as real presence. They believe that the bread and wine do not change in the manner that the Catholic Church describes, and yet they both believe that Christ is truly present at the bread and wine in a very unique way. How he is present is a matter of dispute among them, but they believe that he is present. Somehow he is truly there. Anabaptists, on the other hand, accept what is known as memorialism. They say that the bread and wine are only intended to help us remember, but they are not a means whereby Jesus is actually present to us in a unique way, either substantially or in any other way. So those three terms, transubstantiation, real presence, and memorialism will be important for the test. So in a nutshell, those are the basic differences between the Catholic and the Protestant Church. For our shortened online class, I'll spare you a discussion of my views, and unfortunately you'll miss the opportunity to dialogue with one another. I do want to go on and talk briefly about baptism. Baptism is another area where there is considerable disagreement among Christians. Sometimes there can be rather dramatic disagreements. I have, in fact, actually performed one baptism. I think it's the only one I'll ever perform since I'm not seeking ordination. I was a hospital chaplain for a time. I believe you've already heard stories about this. And one night I was on call and I received notification that there was a young baby who had died had just been born and had not lived, and his parents wanted the child to be baptized. You see, in a Roman Catholic context, in some places, but not others, there is a belief that baptism can be performed shortly after death and still be effective. So I was called down, um, and as I was on my way, I was also notified that the family only spoke Spanish. So I would need to 
use a translator for this service. I had brought along a printed handout that has the liturgical structure for a Roman Catholic baptismal service for a deceased infant. Now, I'm not Catholic, and in most circumstances, someone who is not Catholic is not allowed to baptize a Catholic baptism. However, the Church has allowed for exceptions here in extreme circumstances, such as where there is not a Catholic chaplain available at a hospital, and yet an urgent baptism is needed. So I came prepared to do something that, frankly, I was a little bit uncomfortable with. My own personal conviction was that baptism for the deceased and infant baptism, for that matter, were not the ideal practice. And yet, though it was a bit of a complicated ethics question, I decided it was more important to care for those in need and to provide a baptism for them. I can't get into the details there of my reasoning, but I can say that I was very surprised when I showed up to discover that uh, the nurse who had contacted me gave me wrong information, and the child was in fact alive. So I had to wing a Catholic baptismal service for an infant who was alive but near death and at risk of death on the fly while using a Spanish translator who probably was not very convinced that I knew what I was doing. The family was very grateful. The uh, baptism, I've checked since, I'm told is actually a valid one from a Catholic perspective, despite the fact that I did a poor job. And the last I heard, the young child actually lived. So praise be to God for that. Why am I telling you this crazy story? Well, it illustrates how complex the theology of baptism can be, first of all. Who can baptize whom? Who can receive baptism? What sort of ritual must be done in baptism? But it also illustrates the fact that different Christians believe something very different is happening during baptism. You might find yourself wondering, why would someone want to baptize someone who has died? The answer to that question is that from a Roman Catholic perspective, infant baptism gets rid of original guilt. So remember our discussion of uh, original sin. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are born and are viewed as guilty before God. Now there are a few variant Catholic views here, but the predominant one says once you are baptized as an infant, you still have a sinful nature, and yet that sacrament cleanses you of your guilt. So if a child dies and is unbaptized, it's a very serious thing that must be remedied with baptism immediately. So that was the rationale in this context. Roman Catholics baptize infants to remit original guilt. Reformed Christians have a very different perspective here. They accept infant baptism, but they tend to appeal to passages in the New Testament that point to baptism as being a parallel to circumcision. Male Israelites were circumcised as a sign that they belonged to the covenant community. So Reformed Christians baptize as a sign of the child being born into covenant community. But they believe that incorporation into that community is a means of transmitting God's grace. Third, Anabaptists. A good rule of thumb is if you have Baptist in your name, it's because you believe that one should not receive baptism until you are old enough to make the choice to believe yourself. So Anabaptists only baptize adults. 
And typically, virtually all Anabaptists believe that baptism is not a sacrament. It does not convey grace in any special way. It is only an ordinance. I happen to be an exception here, being uh, a sacramental uh, view of believer's baptism. So there's lots of variety out there. Uh, but this podcast has hopefully introduced you to the tip of the iceberg in terms of disputes on these practices known as the sacraments. I hope that one thing you might take from this and recognizing that many Christians believe that these are tremendously important practices is that that belief in the significance of these events might be different from what you're accustomed to. I know there was a time in my life where I would go to church and regularly receive the Lord's Supper and not think anything of it. It was just something we did at church, much like, much like standing up to shake other people's hands occasionally. It didn't truly matter to me. But then as I grew a little bit older, um, and I really wasn't involved in church much as a kid anyway, so as I actually converted to the faith as a late teenager, I wound up at a church that would take the Lord's Supper every week and would spend considerable time going aside and praying and spiritually preparing beforehand and reconciling with others if there had been conflict and seeking to repent and turn to God. And when I began to take the Lord's Supper seriously, I found that it had a significant impact on my spiritual formation. Christians debate these things because they believe they matter, and they change the way that you relate to God and the way that you grow as a Christian. So wherever you land on these debates, I hope that you will take the question seriously if you are a Christian, and striving to understand what it is we actually do when we gather together to remember our Lord. So that's my final word of teaching for the semester. I wish we had more time in person for me to hear from you in terms of what your last words would be. But in lieu of that, if you have anything to share by email about how to improve the class uh, or things that I might could do to better serve future generations of students, please do let me know. Otherwise, this is the last lecture with new content. I'll see you next time for review. Until then, be well.